On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to new Ward 5 Councillor Russ Powers, sworn in this week. We're talking about a new rocket launcher. Uh, Stick around because it's way too hard to explain right now. Crazy idea, but it works. And we're talking about cursive writing, which apparently is, well, not apparently, is fading away, but some are still lobbying that we should be teaching it. What do you think? Stick around and make your decision. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Russ Powers was sworn in today as the new Ward 5 Councillor for Hamilton, replacing Chad Collins, who is now an MP. Russ Powers, of course, a very familiar name and very clearly, Russ, uh, a man who has not lost his political savvy and intelligence. You waited until after that endless meeting last week for urban boundary expansion and then got sworn in. You are a brilliant man. Oh, you know, who says all those years don't come in handy when you need them? <laughs> yeah, uh, the smart move, let me tell you. Although you are um, you are going to be diving into the deep end here. But do you, when you got sworn in today, when you go through that, and it, it wasn't a very big public thing, not like uh, when the rest of council does it, but do you still get the chills or the excitement or the thrill or whatever when, when you do say you're going to jump in and do this again? Yes, it, it is. I mean, you know, the moment that you're sworn in, it's like, what did I do? <laughs> and uh, but uh, and and then, and then I started to go through all the logistics of working with the clerk's office and uh, and and getting briefed by my uh, my executive assistant with with regards to uh, what she has done in the uh, you know in the interim since uh, um, Chad and his uh, executive assistant uh, left the city. So. Uh, and then HR wants to see you, and the endless and endless, and bring the computer in, and you know, give a computer to a guy who's hardly computer savvy. It's like you know, you got to go on the VPN, you got to go on that. And I was like, oh my god, why did I do this? Well, let me ask you that. So, why did you do this? And I know you're joking when you say this, but what was your motivation for deciding to jump back in? Well, it's it basically the. I mean, I had some encouragement from some, some people, and the and the reasoning problem more than anything that was the, the deciding factor for me is this is uh, this is only a twelve month appointment. I mean, it expires on the. I was just looking it up. It expires on November the fourteenth of twenty twenty two, which is when the, uh, the, uh, the 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 new council the. The Elections Act says the, it defines when the term goes. So this one will, for me, will expire on the 14th of November, notwithstanding the new council may have been sworn in. I figure a year is something that I can provide my experience, particularly on, on protocol and a lot of these files. You know, Scott, you know, they go full circle. They come back again. And, uh, and uh, you know, I served in capacity as chair on a number of committees that are front and center all over again. So for, for 12 months, I can, uh, um, you know, relive my experiences of all those years and, uh, and hopefully, um, help the city in doing so. It does sound though, with, with all the stuff that's going on, it does sound a little bit like setting the treadmill to full speed and then trying to jump on and not like kill yourself as you wipe out, trying to keep up with everything. Well, that's it. I mean, you need to put the bard rails up because if not, it'll throw you right <laughs> off very, very quickly. So, um, the, the answer is um, I will, how should we say, join in when I'm comfortable. They're going to engage me, um, you know, as, as quickly as reasonably proper. But if I need a little bit of a time out just on 
on something, I'm going to take it because there's no purpose in, you know, in in doing something and acting and, and speaking on something that I'm not up to speed on. Well, and the last time, and it wasn't that long ago, the last time we had a situation like this, it was Terry Anderson, who also had history and experience in that role. And I, I would describe his participation as quiet. He, he didn't show up and be blustery. He, he, you know, worked quietly almost in the background. Do you see yourself handling yourself? It sounds like it kind of similar, or do you see a different approach for yourself? Uh, Scott, I've always, that's the way I've always operated is, uh, is, you know, where I can work with not only staff, but, uh, but council colleagues in order to achieve what we want to set. When, when we have our mind as to what, where council wants to go and the, and the devil's in the details, I'm one that will uh, work with um, staff and the councillors to, you know, go through the deep weeds and, uh, and, and come up with solutions. So I don't, uh, it's not my intention. I've never been one who's to be blustery or, uh, um, you know, need microphone time. Um, I, when I speak, I believe my colleagues listen to me because I'm well-researched on the subjects. How closely, uh, I mean, obviously you're not sitting around the table and no one I'm assuming is following everything as closely as they are because they have to be up on everything, but how closely have you been following the things that have been going on around city council? I mean, are you tuned into every meeting on TV or online or are you generally aware or somewhere in the middle? Um, probably somewhere in the middle. What I do is, you know, be, because the fact that the agendas and the background uh, information is is posted on the uh, on the web page, uh, city's web page. I'll go on it. I'll take a look at it. And uh, in, in in any subject or any uh, area, there's ones that are m- of more interest uh, to me than uh, other ones. Those ones I'll I'll read them into minute details, but other ones I'll scan over. So I have probably over the last, well, I've been retired for seven years. I'm going to say probably maybe three years ago, you know, you had to, you had to kind of be convinced in your own mind was you're retired mm-hmm. and you can uh, do what you, um, you know, wanted to and enjoy, uh, enjoy t- time with my, uh, with my girlfriend and, and travel when we used to be able to. So I'm, you know, the long way of saying that the short answer is I'm pretty up to speed on the majority of the subjects. Have you already received a, a backhoe full of material that you have to read through before your first meeting? Oh, tell me about that. Yes, yes. And, the, and the, you know, they say, just go on and you can pull it up in the thing. And it's like, you know, you now go to appendix triple Z, uh, page <laughs> 487 and whatever the case is. And they they thought I might like some paper to take home with me today, and then that. And uh, you're you're right. I uh, I got a trolley in order to take it out to my vehicle. Russ, honestly, I mean, we, we sort of laugh about this a little, but do you believe that you could step in and do this if you had not done this job before? No, definitely not. No, no. Um, here here's a funny little thing we used to say over the years. Now, when I was first elected. Uh, Scott, there were two-year terms. So I've been through two-year terms, three-year terms, and four-year terms. And kind of among the politicians and even staff, and more, I got it from staff, is the first, if you're a brand-new counselor, the first six months is the learning curve. Just, you know, where is everything? Which door you go through? You know, where is the room for the particular meeting? 
And then if it's your intentions to run again, you're into election mode the last six months. So in a two-year term, guess what? You've only got a year of, of, uh, of meaningful contribution. Um, you know, when you run into three years, you're down to two. And when you're into four years, you're down to, down to three. From a staff standpoint, they're much happier with the four-year term because they get three productive years out of the council. Mm. This one, you know, 12 months, um, someone other than an experienced counselor would have had a real challenge of getting up to speed in, uh, in a short period of time. I mean, they would be there but they wouldn't have the the knowledge of who to, where to, and where to go. Well, uh, last thing, because I wish we had a lot more time, but um, you haven't been out of the game that long, as you say, seven years, but you've been around politics. I suspect, though, that politics has changed more than a little since you've been gone, because in the last few years, it seems to have become way more polarized, way more angry. How do you navigate that? How do you step in when politics, I think, and maybe you disagree, but I think it's changed. How do you, how do you come in there and deal with that kind of stuff? Uh, and, and Scott, and I totally agree with you. It has changed. I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, periodically when, when things were about, I mean, we're now into the third year, this fourth year term prior to COVID when you could actually see people. And, you know, when we, and we talk on, talk on the phone, the, the degree of the meetings and the accountability is something the fact that there's the, uh, the the social network out there, the ability for people to you know go on to the uh, Facebook, whatever the case is, the fact that we're all on email and therefore an email when you send when a uh, when a constituent sends a, an email, they expect immediate response and and with the degree of the meetings and the degrees of all the matters that are before council. It's uh, it's it's an empowering uh, impact, and uh, and in some cases probably a burden on some of the councillors. But that's once again why I believe it's important that you know one of the four of us who were uh, had um, municipal council experience um, are, are the ones that kind of be able to wade through uh, the challenges ahead. That is Russ Powers, brand newly minted Ward 5 counselor for the next year. Uh, Russ, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott, for the invitation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So at the end of the show yesterday, Ben sent me this thing. Ben back at the office was looking at something and sent me this thing. And I said, okay, we got to do something tomorrow night. It's called Spin Launch which sounds kind of what happens when your washing machine gets a little, little overexcited, but that's not what this is. This is a space program. And essentially what it is, it's a giant, think of it as a giant enclosed Ferris wheel. Although it's the world's fastest Ferris wheel <laughs> because they put a rocket inside this and something attaches to it and begin spinning it around like a Ferris wheel, only faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. It kind of, the thing looks like a, a giant fly fishing reel attached to the rod. And after it spins and spins and spins and gets up to hypersonic speed, the rocket shoots out what I'm describing as the fishing rod. There's like a chimney almost. And this rocket then fires up and it's reached suborbital levels already. It's, it's, it's crazy what they're doing, but apparently it works. Dr. Jesse Rogerson is an astrophysicist and an assistant professor at York University. He joins us now. Jesse, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me back. 
Uh, this sounds like some NASA scientist fever dream that they came up with. Well, yes, it does. I mean, the, when you when you look at how this is being put together, something spinning at such high speeds and 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 you know trying to get into to orbit with anything other than a rocket, it can it can sound kind of crazy. But you know, there's when you're talking about getting into space and and exploring space, the it's this is a it's, it takes a, ma- a large amount of energy to make that happen. And if you're doing it with conventional rockets, it can be quite wasteful. So for years, for many, many, ever since we started going to space, there many groups have been looking into how to develop access to space in a, in a cheaper, cheaper slash easier slash less dirty way, less polluting way. And, and this is one of those concepts that could be moving forward. I just can't believe now it works. They've, they've done these tests and it works. I'm just, I'm struggling to understand because my thought would be like anything else. Like if you hit a baseball, guys who hit baseballs a mile in the major leagues, the ball will, it's not a pure parabola. It, you, you lose your momentum. And I'm just trying to picture this thinking I can see the rocket coming out of here at whatever miles an hour or kilometers an hour, but I just can't imagine it has enough oomph to travel as far as it needs to, but they're saying it's going tens of thousands of feet up. So, yeah. And if you, it depends on, you know, when you're, when you're launching something, it depends all on your, on the mass of the thing that you're, that you're launching and, and the aerodynamics of getting through the atmosphere, right? Cause you have to get through the atmosphere to at, at whatever speed. So you can like, you can crunch the numbers and you can see, okay, what speed do I need to move at? How do I need, how high do I need to get? And as long as you can, you can hit the numbers you need. So it's like getting into low earth orbit, you need um, like seven, eight, nine kilometers per second. Um, if you can hit that, then, then you can do a suborbital hop and maybe it doesn't go into orbit, but you know, you can get up to the right height and you come back down. You know, they're starting to get to the point where maybe this is a way to get things into orbit, small things into orbit. So it's, it's completely, the interesting thing here is that it's completely unique, right? You're not, you, you're not doing a conventional rocket launch. You're, you're spinning something up really fast and then and letting it fly. It's 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 entirely different. It's kind of like also the idea of a space elevator, right? Um, yeah. Have you heard where the idea of a space elevator is where you literally build an elevator to space using uh, a, a t- uh, you you put a satellite in space. You have an elevator that comes down from it, and then you can just go up and down without the need of a conventional rocket. And and that sounds like crazy science fiction as well. So this this one is a, a similar idea and. And it's certainly possible, although, and you can, as you're saying, they've, they've demonstrated the technology. The, the next step is to demonstrate it for the, the next level. So you know, higher altitudes, more sustainable, and also bigger payloads. Yeah. And again, the idea behind this, if people are still having a hard time imagining, first of all, <laughs> they can look up spin launch online. There's all kinds of stuff, but think of a, di- uh, of a, um, a hammer thrower at the Olympics. They have the, the handle with then the metal wire and then the ball at the end and you spin and you spin and you spin and you let go, except you're not spinning in horizontally. You're spinning it faster and faster and faster until the thing goes up. The, the, they still need though. The, so as you described, you're getting rid of the waste because the vast majority, if you're launching a traditional rocket, the vast majority of the fuel is needed for the first push, right? Once you get up, you need less. Now this is still going to need fuel, but you wouldn't have to ignite something until it was already way, way up there. Right. So you can, this is, and that's how um, some people think about space, space elevators as well. So you, once you get to a certain altitude, like um, you, this is the same idea that Virgin Galactic is using for its rocket system, where you you fly in an airplane to a really high altitude, a high uh, uh, sustainable height, 
with an airplane, and then you release a rocket and launch from there. And then from there, when you're launching from higher up, you have less atmosphere to get through and less, you need less fuel to do the launch. So th- this is a, yeah, a, a similar idea here. And th- just the fact that they're doing the test, this is what I love about the story, is that, the, that they're doing the test and they're showing that the tech is possible. So I, I, it's really exciting to see companies attempting to get access to space for uh, in a completely unconventional way. Yeah, and, and we should point out, I, you know, reading this, um, although logic, you don't have to read this part. This is not ever going to be for manned flight. The poor astronauts would be like dizzy to the point. And then the centrifugal force, they'd just be a pancake against the window. But there would be, there would be reasons to do this. There would be applications for, as you say, smaller things that you're going to shoot up there. Right. So you're talking about like, so one of the interesting things about space explore or, or space satellites in the last, you know, 20 years or so is we've, we've started realizing that, you know, there's, there's a, a time and a place for a big payload where you have, you put a big, huge thing in, in orbit around the earth that does a lot of interesting things, but those are subject to high costs and have many points of failure. In, in addition to those big projects, there's a lot of value to doing many small projects where you do, and, and the size of satellites shrink are shrinking down to CubeSats and NanoSats. So a CubeSat is something like the size of a briefcase, and a NanoSat is something like the size of like a softball or a smaller. Mm. And, and these things have, uh, they're, they're going up with very specialized, they're, they're being developed for very specialized things where you would get them into orbit to do one specific task, say, take images of something or do one specific measurement. And they're cheaper to make. You can make them in any lab at a university. They are much, much easier to launch because they're so light. Their weight is so small. So you can, you can envision a, a company like this where uh, you, if it ever becomes feasible, and this becomes a, a common way to, you know, you literally spin it up and you shoot it up, um, then that would be the type of thing that you would do. You would, you would send these small things, these CubeSats or small sats uh, to do it, and there's a and and it's not doesn't just have to be Earth observations that can be involved. It can be flying things off to other planets. Just like last year, NASA flew off a couple of CubeSats to Mars to demonstrate Mars to demonstrate that CubeSats, small satellites, are useful even in interplanetary space. So getting into space doesn't need to be a rocket necessarily, but the, I mean, the, the company still has to demonstrate the technology further, but it's promising that you can launch these things. You spin it up like a wicked fast and then off it goes into orbit. And, and there you go. It is, uh, it is crazy. Again, it is called uh, spin launch. People should look it up online just to see what I'm talking about and to see what Jesse's talking about. It it's is, uh, it, it, it is it's, pretty wild. That, that's, it, uh, that's why I wanted to talk about it. I've never thought that, you know, just this would do it, but here we go. Uh, Dr. Jesse Rogerson, astrophysicist, York university professor, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a fantastic piece that was printed at thespec.com today. You can still read it there. It's under the headline of why handwriting still matters. Let me read you a paragraph or two from this piece. Fewer students are learning cursive writing in schools, as evidenced by the fact that it is now optional in Ontario, British Columbia, and Newfoundland and Labrador. Even though the other provinces still nominally include cursive writing in the curriculum, not all teachers and schools give it the same level of emphasis. Without proper instruction... Students aren't likely to learn cursive writing when they are 
surrounded by computer screens. Many people don't see a problem with this educational shift. Some educators even suggest there isn't much need for cursive writing anymore. After all, computers are ubiquitous. Even handwritten signatures are being replaced by electronic signatures and PIN codes. The author of that piece, who I suspect did not write that by hand, although, you know, could have, because I'm sure he knows how to do cursive writing. Uh, his name is Michael Zweigstra. He joins me now. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Scott. Glad to be here. Well, I really appreciate having you on because this is something that has driven me a little bit bonkers for the last little while. Because Is it just me and you then that are really old-fashioned that we would think that there is value in cursive writing still? No, I mean, obviously there are a lot of people who have uh, lost sight of why it's important, but uh, uh, handwriting is important, and uh, it's not just us that, uh, that feel that way. There is actually good reasons uh, why students should still learn how to handwrite. Even if you don't use it often later in life, it still gives you some valuable skill development in early years that benefits you for the rest of your life. It is, though, in some ways a bit of a relic, is it not? Oh, sure. I mean, that's, uh, uh, certainly. And, uh, obviously, as you mentioned in the intro there, no, I didn't, I didn't write the, the article by hand. Uh, <laughs> I did type it in. I'm not a Luddite. Obviously, I use computers on a regular basis. Um, but the reason why handwriting is, uh, is, is useful is because when you're learning how to read in the first place, when you're developing those foundational skills, uh, the research evidence is actually quite clear that handwriting engages your brain in more ways than typing on a keyboard. When you're first learning how, you know, what does the B sound like and how you writing it out by hand in a painstaking way, you, you get a closer connection there. There's more going on with your brain than, uh, than, than we just simply press, an, uh, press a, uh, a key on the keyboard or, or, or press something on your tablet. There's just, there's just a world of a difference between those two things. Do we, I know you're not a medical doctor or even a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Do we know why that is? Do we know why that act of writing it with our hand as opposed to pressing a button is different? Well, it's because there, there's more thought that's going into it. I mean, when you, if you think about it for a second, um, to put the, put the pen or pencil in your hand and you're actually having to put, you have to write out the shape of the letter, that's, once you have that memorized and you can do that confidently, that, that is actually, you've really put something in your brain there. You've really got the C and the D and the E and the differences between those, more so than just simply pressing a key on the keyboard. And so uh, one of these studies that I referenced in my, uh, in, in my article is uh, one that, was, that came out just recently in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, where they actually used electrodes, researchers put electrodes on the brain, and they compared children who were handwriting with those who were typing. Uh, those who were writing, there's a lot more brain activity going on. And so the evidence is pretty clear on this. I guess it's probably not a lot different from when you're trying to learn to do any skill and doing it, you learn it better than just watching someone else do it. I guess it's exactly the same idea. It is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of interesting here. There's, when you develop basic skills, because learning doesn't come naturally. It's not something that comes automatically. It's hard work. It's, it's painstaking work. And, uh, but there's, there's so much payoff when, you, when those basic skills are committed to memory uh, and when you have foundational knowledge in your brain, uh, because then you can go on to more advanced concepts and, and, and more complicated things. 
But when you, if you don't ever get those foundations in place, if you don't learn how to read effectively, if you don't, if you don't sort of, uh, you know, know each of the letters, uh, you're going to just struggle uh, for the rest of your academic career. And uh, we shouldn't do that to students. They should learn the foundations as early as possible because it pays off in dividends uh, when they're older. Uh, I was not, uh, you know, uh, true confessions time. I was not a great student. I did everything else at school reasonably well. It was the academic stuff I didn't love quite as much as some of the other things. But one thing I learned along the way was that when you're studying, if you write out what it is that you're studying, you retain it better. And I don't think that, I think it ties in. I don't think that's a unique theory. I think it ties in exactly to what you're talking about. Well, of course it does. I mean, because when you're, basically when you're doing anything where you're sort of, when you're writing it down, you're, 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 what you're doing is you're, you're reinforcing it in your memory. And, uh, and one of the other studies I referenced in my article is one from 2014. Uh, it was published in Psychological Science, and it compared university students who took notes by hand uh, with those who used laptops, and it found that the students who took notes by hand retained considerably more information than those who used laptops because, again, they, they speculate that this is because when you're writing by hand, you have to be a bit more selective about what you're putting down, uh, your brain is more active and more engaged than when you're just typing on a keyboard. And so uh, so even when you're older, uh, there are circumstances where handwriting is beneficial to your learning. Uh, serious question. I truly don't know the answer to this. Do kids who don't learn cursive writing then, do we know, do they just print all their lives? Is, I mean, is that essentially what we're teaching them and then leaving it there? That's if they want to write something, they just print? Yeah, that is what happens. I mean, uh, I've seen it. I see it where, where, where kids can't, where when they're signing their name, they put an X or they put their two initials in printed form. I've actually seen that a lot. And, uh, you know, it, it, and that's where you sort of, it, it comes where, where it's the most obvious is when you're signing your name. Now, if, if signing your name was the only thing we used handwriting for, you could make the case for getting rid of it. Cause yeah, we use pin codes and all that and you press a button. And, uh, and, and it's the equivalent of a, of a signature these days. Um, but it's, that's actually not the main reason at all. It's because handwriting is good for skill development and, and, and learning how to read. But yeah, if you don't learn how to handwrite in school, uh, chances are you're not going to learn it as an adult. It's a tough skill to learn. All right. So let me follow that up with another serious question then. Um, we teach printing even though computers are available and pin codes are available and all the things you just talked about for the reason that we don't need cursive, they say, is because we have these devices. Well, if cursive is unnecessary, then isn't printing equally useless and unnecessary? Yeah, and, and you actually see in some circumstances, schools get go whole hog into the, uh, into the computers and tablets and it concerns me when you know you're in grade one and you're on the tablet the whole time, or, or you're on a computer the whole time, because you're missing out on some valuable uh, skill development. But yeah, it's, it's logically it does follow that if we were going to use computers all the time for everything, uh, I, I could totally see why some educators might argue, well, maybe we don't even need to worry about printing. Um, but I think that's a mistake. It's, it's the equivalent of saying we don't need to learn how to do basic math because we've got calculators. Well, we don't learn how to do basic math because of the fact that we're going to be in all these circumstances where we always have to add up on, on paper by hand. Uh, we learn basic math because you need to have the facts in your brain in order to do more advanced math. I mean, good luck solving an algebraic equation if you don't know that 6 and 6 is 36 by memory. If you have to look but, stuff up when you're doing a more advanced question, you're going to struggle with it. 
but a lot of people believe that though. We now have a calculator on our phone. So why do I need to do, I mean, lots of schools have got rid of, you know, times tables and all those things. Cause why do we need it? Why do we need to spend our time? I, it's the same thing I know, but it's just, if, if the technology is there, why waste our time on stuff that is now duplication of what's already available? You know, some of the strongest advocates of kids still learning some of these basic skills, and I'll take math as an example, are, are math professors in, in university. I, I know a number of them personally. Uh, there's actually a group in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, that have formed an advocacy group called WiseMath.org, uh, where they actually have, uh, where they push for learning multiplication tables and basic math because they see the effects of not learning those skills in their first-year calculus classes, because you need to have the basics in place to do more advanced. It's the same thing in reading and uh, language arts. If you don't learn the basics, if you don't know how what the letters are and how to sound them out, and if you don't have this automatically in your brain, you're going to struggle when you're reading anything uh, anything more advanced. You need the basics in place in order to do more advanced things. Okay, you said a moment ago that it's not easy to learn, to teach or to learn cursive. And, you know, I question that a little bit because, uh, we've done it everybody. I mean, even people who might be not able to read very well, we've all, everybody for decades in school learned and yep. taught cursive and not everybody was a future brain surgeon. Has it become harder all of a sudden or more time no, consuming or are no, we just not, less not, inclined? Yeah. No, it's nothing to do with it being harder than before. It's simply that it does not come naturally. Learning in general is not natural. This and this is where that old uh, debate in education between progressive and more traditional, and obviously I'm more on the traditional side, but the evidence is very clear on this, that, that, that something like handwriting or reading, these are not things you learn automatically. You don't learn them by osmosis. You don't learn them just because uh, you put them in a room and you say, do some stuff that engages you. You have to practice, and it has to be directly taught, and you have to repeat. And it's it's hard in the sense that it does not come automatically. You have to actually work at it. It's no harder than it was before. And yes, it's not so hard that you can't do it. Of course, everyone can do it, um, but it has to be directly taught. Uh, but it is very hard if we're going to expect kids to just pick it up naturally. Uh, it's virtually impossible at that point. But isn't there kind of a move afoot within a lot of different schools and school boards and educators to apply the things in curriculum that you will use in real life. I mean, I know a lot of places are now really pushing for money to learn about money, to learn how to handle money as part of the curriculum. I mean, we've, we've brought in sex ed for things that were, because we say, well, this is real life applications. Wouldn't writing and being able to do this kind of thing be a real life application? It sure is. And, uh, uh, the problem is, is that the, uh, uh in education these days, there is a, uh, a progressive philosophy out there, which is all about student-directed learning, project-based learning, inquiry learning, these are all the buzzwords. And for anyone who thinks, and they call it often 21st century learning, 21st century skills, and the six C's, and you know, focusing on competencies and all that, anyone who thinks that any of this stuff is new needs to read William Hurd Kilpatrick's 1918 article called The Project Method, where he advocated this progressive approach where everything just comes naturally. Uh, Kirkpatrick was, Kilpatrick was just plain wrong. The evidence does not support his position. And yet, because he was an influential education professor at Columbia Teachers College, he influenced a whole bunch of future education professors. And now we're stuck with some really bad educational philosophy that just continues on to this day. And it's very frustrating to see. 
Uh, one of the funny things that I've always thought about many, not all, but many of the people who are now those pushing for this different style of learning and all the rest, they're very bright people. They've got lots of degrees beside their names and they got all those degrees and all that knowledge by doing it the old way that they now say is not good enough, which basically says I, to me, well, they're telling us they're not really at their capacity because they learned all the old stuff as opposed to, it just, it makes no sense to me. You're, you're yeah, arguing a, against your own success. Yeah. There's a certain irony that some of these hardcore progressive education consultants, someone like Alfie Cohn, who speaks in school at school division in services all the time. And he lectures extensively and his lectures are all about why teachers should lecture and why students should learn things independently. So yeah, there's a certain irony that, uh, that you have all these gurus that are lecturing and direct instruction when they're actually trying to convey their ideas, but their ideas are all about you should never do that with your students. Um, of course, they don't put it into practice themselves because they've got stuff they want you to learn, and they know the most efficient way to do that is to instruct you directly, which includes explaining things, and then you practice it afterwards. It is uh, it is a great piece. Uh, we've got it in the spec.com. You can see it there. Michael Zweigst, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Have a good evening. It's, uh, look, uh, I understand that not everyone is going to agree with this. I understand that some people probably do take the position that cursive writing is unnecessary. Now we have computers. If kids want to print, we can record stuff. Uh, everything's on your phone. We can, you've got your phone right there. You don't have to do anything other than have your phone. You can even have a program on your phone. I use it for work that you record and it transcribes as you're talking. It's amazing. So why do we need to have cursive writing? Why waste the time on cursive writing in school? I, I, I'm with Michael. You can disagree. That's totally fine. But I think it's more than just learning how to make nice letters and nice script. It's not about artistic merit. Although, heaven knows, there is something to be said totally, un, well, totally secondarily. There is something to be said for being able to write a letter to someone once in a while. Not, we don't do that. We email now, but I have letters that I've kept from my grandmother who had the most unbelievably immaculate handwriting the world has ever seen. She worked on it all the time. Right behind me where I'm sitting right now in a frame, I have a letter from my dad. Handwriting. He could have written the same thing by typing it into a computer and then printing it out, but it's not nearly as personal as when it's in the person's handwriting. There's something about that that I, I just think we're really losing it if we just abandon this because we have other things to do. I do. I, and, and I, as I said, and Michael disagreed with me a little on this one, but I, I just, I don't think, I can't imagine that it would take so much time in class that we just can't fit it into the curriculum. We can't fit it into the day. We don't have time anymore to be teaching kids how to, how to use handwriting. Well, what, have we, what were we doing all the other times? For generations, what were we doing? We found time then. Find some things in our curriculum now that are just filler because, you know, we've added a whole bunch of stuff. I can't imagine that everything we've added is adding great value to the kids' education. I mean, heaven knows we're trying to move backwards a little bit. We're trying to teach money management, as we just said. We're trying to teach other things that are applicable to life. Truly, this is one of them.
and surely there, as I say, is a value in being able, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't expect everybody to go into the line of work I'm in or, you know, that you don't have to be a whatever else that requires you to write. But surely if you do happen to choose one of those fields where it requires writing, doctors taking notes or a journalist or lawyers taking notes in a courtroom or wherever else, or pick your thing. There's tons of professions that require you to be able to write notes. I assure you, that being able to write things in cursive is a lot quicker than you're trying to keep up with someone as you're printing. It just doesn't work. If we're, if we're, if we're going to be having kids learn stuff that's applicable to their lives, that's applicable to what they're going to do, surely cursive is one of them. But that probably just makes me a dinosaur like a lot of other things. I, 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 I see great value in it, but clearly the educators who are way, way, way smarter uh, they know better and cursive is antiquated and a relic and no longer necessary, I guess. Let me know if you agree or disagree. Radley, R-A-D-L-E-Y, Radley. You can type that or you can send me a letter by hand if you want. It'll take a little longer, but it would kind of make the point. Uh, Radley at 900chml.com. That's the email address uh, if you want to have your say. Do you do you favor teaching cursive writing or is it time to let it go because we're we're past that now? We've got computers. Love to hear from you. Either way. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.